0: Good morning again, Evergreen. If you could turn with me, see, it turns out it was not the last time that I asked you to open your Bibles, as I said last week, uh, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're just reading the first three verses. And did you see what John did there? Mark, when we started Mark's gospel, began with Jesus' public ministry and how he came in fulfillment of all the prophets and what they had said, starting with a prophecy from Isaiah. But John started back a little bit further in the sequence of history. He started back in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One thing we have to be cognizant of as Christians is that our faith, in a very real sense, is hitched to the Old Testament. ...that Jesus, when He reveals Himself... ...reveals Himself to be none other... ...but one being... ...as the being that we see... ...who created the heavens... ...and the earth. This is the God that is revealed to us. And this is the focus... ...of the Scriptures... ...is on this one true... ...and living God. Let's read from His holy... ...and inerrant Word. "...in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is God's holy, inerrant word. And when we open it, what's the first thing that we see? When we open our Bibles, what's the first person that we learn about? It's God. You see, oftentimes we open up our Bibles... ...and we come to it looking for it to solve our problems... ...give us advice on how to live better marriages... ...and how to navigate this world. And while all those things are important... There's something more fundamental that we need, more foundational, something that we have to know first if we are going to know ourselves at all. It's who is God? That's how the Bible starts off. It introduces us to who God is fundamentally. And we're going to see who God is through a title, through a transition, and we're actually going to see the Trinity in our text this morning. When we open our Bibles, though, I think even in the very beginning of it, it's an important thing to ask ourselves when you're starting any book is, how do we read this book? Because many people, when they open up the book of Genesis, because of maybe some conflicts that in the teachings of what people think about uh, the origins of this universe, that this must be poetry. That the form that we're given this book when it starts off at the beginning of history is just a poetic form, and the reason why that emphasis is there so that we don't have to see a conflict with Christianity. That's why people like Andy Stanley uh, from my hometown in uh, Forsyth County why he said that we as Christians need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And when we make such a claim as that, we haven't just lost the Old Testament. We've lost Christianity itself. If we have unhitched our faith from the Old Testament because it says things that we don't like, or things that might contradict what the world teaches, first we shouldn't be surprised by that. And second, we've lost the only explanation that we have for who we are, why we exist, why we have purpose, and everything else. When we see who God is, what we see is a God who doesn't operate according to what we would presuppose or think that how he should make the world. We all have certain ideas of how God should have done things. But the thing is, is we're not God. But I don't want to just assume that this is just a historical narrative. There are some things in here that can show us that it's a historical narrative. First is just the grammatical structure of it. The whole book of Genesis is structured around genealogies. Starting with this very first one of the creation of the world. And for those who wonder if this is teaching history, I and they find certain things hard to believe, such as the beginning of the world, God speaking the world into existence, God saying, let there be light, and there was light. And we fi- if we find that difficult to believe, usually my first question to people in that light, especially if they're a Christian, is to say, when do you start taking God's word seriously? When do you start believing and taking God at his word? Because things, especially when we go to the beginning of time, things don't operate the way they work now. For instance, we're going to get to chapter 4 through 11, where we're going to see people living for hundreds and hundreds of years. Do you wait to start believing God and believing the history as it presents it? Until then... The reality is, is that a lot of the different scientific theories about the origins of this world are based on that principle. It's a principle called uniformitarianism. That the way things operate now is the way things have always operated. And the irony there is no one believes that. No scientist believes the way things operate now is the way things have always operated. What we have in Genesis is a chronological, sequential history from the beginning of time all the way up to the story of Joseph. The actual grammatical form doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It starts with a title sentence and then moves into the sequential account of history and then moves in and transitions to the next phase. And every other phase from here on out is going to be a genealogy. But that's not where we're at right now. What we're at right now is a summary statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This word here, Genesis, actually does not come That title comes from the Greek translation of this text. This text in Hebrew would just be in the beginning, because it's all one word. It starts off, actually, with a sequence of events. And Genesis is just referring to the word that we're going to see over and over again, which is genealogy, which this book is structured around genealogies. So it makes sense why it would be called that. But in the beginning, notice what we're told. God created the heavens and the earth. Even the word there, the heavens and the earth, and the reason why I say it's a title is because there's not one word for the universe, for all things. So how would you communicate that? You would say, from the heavens, everything up there, down to the earth and everything in between. It's the same sort of language that when we encounter Melchizedek, who speaks for the God of the heavens and the earth, who created all the heavens and the earth. It's the same thing we see in the New Testament when we see Jesus referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z. If I say I know everything, I know the dictionary A to Z, which I don't, What am I saying? I'm not saying I know all the alphabet, every single individual letter. I'm starting things from the beginning, A, and then saying I know everything to Z, and everything in between. Genesis starts off by declaring that in the beginning of history itself, God made absolutely everything. Why does God not start off with something more practical? Why doesn't he start off? Why isn't the focus of the Bible about how I should live my life? Couldn't he have used this whole book to give me that and give me more information? He could have. But we miss something if we don't realize that, and we're going to see that humanity is made in the image of God. That we find our purpose, we find our design reflected in the God of the universe. The fact that we're designed at all comes from knowing this God. And who is he? How does he just reveal himself in this very first sentence? Well, we see that he's eternal. Time, space, this earth, humanity had a beginning and will have an end. But God is outside of that. History is something he created. And that word for created there is not just any normal word for created. It's a word that's only attributed to God. And God created in such a way where there was nothing before, and then there was something. You know, it's funny, if you abandon the belief in God, you'll believe in almost anything. Like Lawrence, uh, Professor Lawrence Krauss, I think he's at Arizona State University. I think it was about 10 years ago that he talked about how nothing created everything. And he's a physicist at Arizona State University, and he's a world-renowned physicist, by the way. And when you start reading that book, he starts off by defining nothing as not nothing. He defines the word nothing as a something. Because he says that nothing in and of itself is inherently unstable and produces stuff. Well, that's not nothing. When God created the heavens and the earth, what he used to make the heavens and the earth, the beginning of time, space, matter, we're talking about the the kind of stuff that rocks think about. Rocks think about nothing. That's the the kind of nothing that we're talking about here. God created everything from nothing. He's outside of it. He's eternal. And the word there for God and the word throughout this entire text is a name for God. There's lots of different names for God, but this one in particular refers to the all-powerful one. It refers to God in his power, in his strength. And this text was written by Moses. Moses was not trying to debunk evolution, even though we'll see as we go through Genesis, evolution does not cohere with the truth claims that Scripture makes. Moses has a different purpose in mind. He's writing to people who are wandering in the wilderness... He's writing to people who were raised as Egyptians, seeing and being told about different gods. And Moses is showing throughout this entire text that there is only one Almighty. That there's only one all-powerful. There's only one Eternal One. Think about what this one simple title for this text teaches us. It teaches us that atheism is not true. For God created all things. We see that pantheism is not true. The idea that mother earth is what gives us life and gives us breath. Mother earth is not a thing. When we look at nature, nature is made out of a bunch of inanimate objects. If you pray to the sun, if you pray to the moon, if you pray to the stars... ...if you pray to the earth... ...you're praying to no one and nothing. The same stuff that rocks think about. It's so important. There's nothing more important that we come to a true apprehension... ...comprehension of the God of the universe. It's especially important because... There's only one true God. There's only one creator of all things. And if anything, if we're going to look at it and test the cru- truth claims of Christianity, we need to realize as Christians that we're going to find ourselves believing things that contradict other people because other ple- people believe in either a lot of different gods or no gods at, other- at all... Or some one other God. And the importance here is when you reach out to God, when you see your sin and your misery, when you see the world is not as it should be, when you fear death and you want to know what do I do about that problem, you want to make sure you're praying to somebody, not nobody. God introduces himself by a title, and the title is really the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all that is time, space, matter. But God, while I would like to talk about the science, God wrote this account not to make us mathematicians, but He wrote this account to teach us about. ...Himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says... ...for what can be known about God is plain to them... ...in other words, the whole world... ...because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes... ...namely, His eternal power and divine nature... ...have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world... ...in the things that have been made. As Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day He pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. By the way, this is what poetry sounds like. There is no speech, there is no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Notice, instead of rhyming like our poetry, Hebrew poetry parallels itself. It repeats itself not just in structure, all Hebrew, the whole Hebrew language is highly structured and has lots of repetition. The distinguishing thing here is, The heavens declare the glory of God, and it repeats that same point to say that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It says the same thing twice in different ways. You don't get that in Genesis chapter 1. But that's, what is the psalmist saying there? How does creation, which we just said is everything is God's creature. If it has a soul, it's because God gave it to it. If everything is just stuff, how, does, how do rocks proclaim God's handiwork? How do nature, rivers, the water system, how does it proclaim God's power, His divine nature? Well, this is the point where I would submit you to the scientist. To direct you to look at the complexity of this world... Even the smallest thing did not just occur by chance... ...but was designed by God Himself. Every aspect of creation displays God's wisdom in His creation. And everyone sees it. No one looks at a painting and says... ...wow, I can't believe how this all arose by chance. This is amazing that that the paint splashed onto the page... And you know what, I can see, I can make out clear images. No one comes up to this building and says, wow, I can't believe over millions and billions of years that these stones stacked themselves in this arrangement. When you see a building, when you see a piece of artwork, it testifies to the per- that there's a person who created and designed it. It proclaims God. That's the title. God as the creator. And that's the God that we proclaim to everyone. But then we have a transition. That the earth, and it uses the the word and right afterwards. And if I was to do a literal translation, it would be, And the earth was form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. When God created the heavens and the earth, what did he make? He made First of all, a focus that we often don't think about. The focus from the very beginning here in verse 2 is on the earth. Carl Sagan in his series Cosmos, when he reflects on the earth and what you see when you pull away and see the vastness of the universe, his takeaway is to say that pale, small, blue dot ...that in his atheistic worldview is seeing everything as arising by chance. Not seeing God's design. His takeaway is that we are just this insignificant blip on the universe. That we should expect to find worlds out in the universe... ...with life similar to ours, maybe civilizations that we encounter... ...because this all just arose by chance. That life somehow must have this spontaneousness to it... that It just generates, it just becomes. First of all, God's focus does not tell us that we are just a blimp in the universe, this small insignificant speck. Rather, when God created the universe, the earth was his focus. It was where he put his creative energy. Everything else will be just an addendum to that. And doesn't that make, isn't that amazing? To think that the God of the universe who created all things, who's outside of time and space, transcendent, came and made and fashioned his creation with his design, with his purpose, imbuing it with significance and value. That applies to every creature in God's universe. And in this transition, we see that the world that was made was, in the ESV, it says, without form and void. The state of the world as it began was without form, without structure. The word there is for a wilderness. And void, it's just the word for empty. The earth in its state, as Moses is looking at it, looks at the world and it. And I'll say this for you, Steve, that it was tofu, tohu and vohu. Formless and void. It was, it was wilderness, and it was empty. And the structure of the creation account, as we read through it, in the chronological series of events, is God's going to, on day one, make one space, give structure to the heaven, to night and day. He's going to give structure... ...to the waters, and he's going to give structure to the dry land. He's going to make different spheres that then he's going to populate. In the next three days, days four, five, and six, he's going to fill the void. Fill the void of space, the universe itself, with galaxies, stars, sun, moon. And then he's going to fill the void of the the waters, the caves, the sky. And then he's going to fill the void of the land... Populating it with animals of all different kinds. And then he's going to crown it with humanity made in his image. There's an inherent design in all of this. There is a structure to this. And God's going to give the earth structure. And he's going to give it form. And the last thing is the first problem that he's going to solve. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And this is the darkness just because there's no light. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What's going on in this transition to focus on introducing who God is to now what we have going on in creation? There's a reason why it's translated as the Spirit of God that out of this chaos that we see of this situation, the original creation being this lump that God is going to shape and He's going to form into His complete, perfect project, He's doing it by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in the midst of the chaos, is hovering over the waters. And that word is used only one other time in Deuteronomy thirty-two, eleven. it's referring to an eagle over its nest brooding hovering and how does a bird hover over its nest protection guidance control doesn't this not flow with even at this step an evolutionary process process of gradual mechanistic mechanistic forces that are not controlled Producing by a chance of uh, natural selection, genetic drift, and n- natural selection, ge- genetic drift, and one other thing. It's been a while since I was a biology major. These are guided processes that God is pointing out to us. That the formation of the creation itself was guided by His hand. It's His handiwork. It's His construction project. And everything in creation is imbued with this design, this handiwork. At the very heart of evolution is chance. But what we have here is everything is being pointed out as God's special creation. This means that everything has significance. There is a beginning of time... And you know, if there's a beginning of time, then there's an end of time. It means that time is moving in a direction. And the direction that it's moving in is not just left up to chance. It's being guided and overseen by the Holy Spirit. It's being guided and built, not just at the moment of creation, but actually throughout all of history, according to God's purposes... In God's designs. And that's just as true for the creation process as it is for us. God reveals his title as the creator. He reveals in this transition a focus upon the earth. The dwelling place of the crown of his creation, humanity. And lastly in verse 3 we see the trinity itself. God said... Let there be light, and there was light. It's things like this that people think, this must be poetry. This must be not really how God did it. We see that there's light that was created first. He deals with the the problem of the darkness... And we'll see when we finish day one and day two next week that there's evening, there's morning. Day one, the first day of creation, has a morning marked by day and an evening marked by night. It's not going to be until day four that the sun is made. What on earth is going on? Well, I think it's a point of interest for us that the rabbis notice something and notice the same thing. They said that the light is the effulgent splendor of the divine presence. They said this because throughout Scripture, when God appears, He appears as fire. He appears as light. When Moses is in His presence for 40 days on Mount Sinai, He has a light radiating off His face. God's presence here being marked. And it's not without reason then that John, when it jumps back to the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what's the next picture that it discloses us of who Jesus is? He was the light of the world. We have both elements here. We see that God spoke. God just gave a command. Let there be light, and guess what? There was light light the word was with god and the word was god colossians 1:16 tells us that without that it's easier just to read it that jesus is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth and what does that mean again it means absolutely everything Invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And it's really important here not to miss that God actually does tell us how he created. How he, rather, we're not told how he created the universe, but we're told how he fashioned the universe. And we're given insight of what that creation looked like. For he spoke... And there it was. You know, we actually have seen a lot of these sorts of things in the life of Jesus himself. Maybe one scene in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13 is helpful. He encounters Matthew chapter 8. Jesus encounters a centurion who came up to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering uh, terribly. ...asking for Jesus to come and heal him. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion, verse 8, replied... ...Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof... ...but only say a word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me... ...and I say to one, go here, and he goes... And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. Let me skip ahead to the close of it in verse 13. Jesus said to him, Go and let it be done for you just as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment so i ask you the question again how did jesus heal this man was it not because he spoke the word and it happened was it not that god has the authority over all things so that when he speaks it is isn't that the type of authority that jesus himself expressed That when Jesus spoke and said something, it was. And it was because Jesus had the authority to speak and it come into being. That's a power that only God possesses. It's a power that belongs uniquely to God. When we read in our Bibles about things like light existing before the sun... We're dealing with things that don't operate according to the way things work now. And it's kind of like music. You you know that music existed before guitars and before microphones and before drums. The sound came first and then an instrument was crafted that would perfect that sound and produce it more beautifully. Now it's not a perfect illustration of what God is doing here. But it is to say that God is producing a light in his creation that is the eminence of his own glory reflected in all of it. And from the very beginning, how does God reveal himself? He reveals himself as transcendent above everything. He reveals himself as imminent imbuing his creation with value and worth that comes from his design, his prerogatives. And he's even showing us here the nature of himself. ...as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father speaking, the Holy Spirit gathering and protecting and guiding... ...and the Son creating. We're seeing here one God and we're seeing Him in three persons. And this is when it's really important to see that our faith... ...why is it hitched to Genesis? Why is it hitched to the Old Testament in general? It's because the Old Testament, the nature of it, was like a seed. It has and contained, especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we'll see the seed of all sorts of Christian beliefs. Actually, every Christian belief finds its seed form in the Old Testament. And throughout, as we go into the New Testament, we see those seeds sprouting. As God tells us more and more and more about himself, he clarifies who he is. He adds to it, not contradicting what came before, but adding to it our clarity so that we might know who he is. And who is this God? Well, yes, he is the creator of everything. He is the only true God who we can pray to. He's the only God who can save us from all our problems. He's the only one who can tell us who we are and how we ought to function how we ought to live. But we can put away science for just a moment. You know that the creation of the world, God so patterned it, that he actually made it a picture of what it looks like to become a Christian. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, "...for the God who said, "...let light shine out of darkness..." has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does it look like to become a Christian? It looks like not living in physical darkness, but as Ephesians 2 tells us, living in darkness, overwhelming chaos of our lives... Being plagued by sin, misery, doubt, doomed to death, doomed to our life, possibly going and ceasing existing, and we don't see the meaning of it all. It's into that that the gospel shines a light. And it shines the light specifically of God's glory. God, the God who created all things, the God as He as Revelation 4.11 tells us, is worthy of our praises, the only one who's worthy of them. And he's shown us who we are. The God who's outside of everything has made himself close. And he didn't just make himself close by designing everything to work as a clock that then ticks off until the end. He's He's imminent in his involvement And that's especially true and especially seen in Jesus Christ. God becoming man and human flesh to redeem us from sin. To give us new life. And if you're hearing my voice, you're God's creature. You are God's creation. And he desires that you would enter into a personal saving relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. And just as the world was made new by the power of God, so every believer who comes into existence is come to existence by God's power alone. Our hope is not in ourselves. We don't ever look to ourselves. We always look for our only hope to be in God and in Him alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us not just that there is a God who exists in the works of creation, not just that there is someone who is almighty, but you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You've shown us the meaning and purpose of our lives is found not in seeking our own happiness not in seeking even what this life means, apart from seeking you first. And Lord, when we seek you and when we see who you are, all of life's questions are answered in you. Lord, for those who do have questions, for those that have not turned to you, may they now turn to the living God as their only hope. Turn to the God who made the heavens and the earth when they have questions about their design. Turn to the God who made everything when they want to know, what must I do to escape sin, to escape death, to escape incoherence? And may they turn to you, for you are good. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.